Our sponsor today is GLSA. For those non-members who may be dropping in on the call today, GLSA or Group Legal Services Association is an affiliate of the American Bar Association, is a professional membership uh, representing the legal services plan industry and provider attorneys. And joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. Check it out at glsaonline.org. Okay, my name is Tom Martin. I'll be your host today. Our teleconference today is how to exceed client expectations and get paid doing it with Dina Eisenberg. So I'm very excited to introduce you to, <clears throat> excuse me, to today's guest, uh, Dina Eisenberg, who is a legal operations strategist. She's the CEO of OutsourceEasier.com and creator of the Intentional Lawyer Movement and an online course, Outsourcing Made Easy for Entrepreneurs. She's a keynote speaker and facilitator. Dina is on a mission to help lawyers create a more satisfying work experience. Uh, she lives in Oakland, and her fur interns are Rodney and Cooper. Uh, Dina, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Hi, I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much for asking me and excited to talk with you. Um, so you're, you're in Oakland, right? I am Oakland baby all the way. <laughs> and how how are things down there? Is 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 winter coming? Well, you know, winter's never coming in Oakland. We only really have two seasons, nice and nicer. Um, <laughs> but it is starting to cool down a little bit. You know, originally I'm from the East Coast. I grew up in New York and lived in Boston for lots of years. And so when I moved to Oakland, it was really about escaping the snow. And so, literally, it's maybe 70s every day here. We're beginning to enter our chilly period, which makes me giggle, because chilly here is like the 50s, <laughs> the 40s. <laughs> it's chilly. <laughs> and people are throwing on scarves and, and uh, gloves, right? Puffer down, jacket funny. I mean, they take cold seriously here. And I just have to laugh because I have my sweater on. I'm like, okay, you all don't know real cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um well again thank you for uh making time for us this morning I, i've heard such great things about you so i i've thank been you. looking forward to talking to you thank you but i know but first I've, got, I've got a i'm sorry go ahead nothing sorry you go no I, I wanted to learn a little bit about you um like you'd mentioned that you grew up on the east coast can you tell us a little more about that I'd love to. So, you know, I've had kind of a patchwork career and really pretty great life, I have to say. So I grew up on Long Island, Long Island for my East Coast friends. And, I, you know, it was a time where it was horse farms and apple orchards. So I had a really kind of idyllic childhood. Um, my dad uh, really just made the, sad, the idea that I was kind of an argumentative kid. I was always curious about things. Um, and so, you know, my dad used to bet his friends that I would be a lawyer. And, of course, I, I don't know if he actually collected, but that was true. Um, huh. When I was 18, I'd seen about 22 Broadway shows. I'm a big New York Broadway fan and love, just love, love, love New York. But I always felt like inside I was a Cali girl and wanted to try it out. So I did that by way of Boston. I moved to Boston to go to law school, and I really enjoyed my time there. Um, and I practiced kind of an arcane 
law. So my dad was so proud that I became a lawyer. When I passed the bar, what he said was, you'll never be without a job. And I had to laugh because when I graduated, there was a huge glut. I mean, probably one of the first lawyers, but just so many lawyers, not enough jobs. And uh-huh. as a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. And so, you know, lawyers and math, they don't really go that well together. So chemistry killed the dream of being a doctor. But when I couldn't get a job as a lawyer in a firm, I was able to work for the government prosecuting doctors for sexual misconduct, which kind of put both those interests in one place So law with medicine, because you need to learn a lot of medicine to be able to prosecute a doctor. Um, And so I did that for a while. And what I learned from that is that, one, I didn't necessarily love um, litigation, lots of gamesmanship in that. But more importantly, I learned that I loved my clients. I loved their traits. They're very courageous women. To be able to stand in front of a group of non-believers, lawyers, and say up to 25 times, because that's how many times I'd have to ask them to share their story throughout a complete case, to share with people some of the most intimate, detailed parts of your lives and know with the expectation of knowing they're going to be shaming you for it just takes so much bravery in my my mind. So I left that experience feeling like, okay, that's what I want to use my talents for, right? I want to use my talents as a lawyer to help individuals feel powerful and be powerful in their own lives. That's fantastic. And um, that's great work that you, that you were doing. I mean, we've heard a lot about that in the news recently. Um, yeah. Yeah. Coming out. So I made the transition from being a lawyer to a mediator and I worked with um, small businesses and small law firms mediating partner disputes. Cause when we start a business, it's all like, rah, rah, it's like putting on a show, everybody's happy. And then you get his snag, and it's like, well, well, who's going to take out the trash? We didn't talk about that. And so right. using those mediation skills to really help partners think about what they want the partnership to be like, how they want to interact with each other, how they're dividing up, you know, the duties and the responsibilities. And I was loving doing that, but then I got a tap from the corporate world. And I was like, ah, oh, you guys, you don't need me. You, you, you have plenty of resources. Um, but I have been talking a lot about conflict management and the idea of using that as a leverage in management settings, like being much more conflict confident as a way to manage better and improve productivity. So I got to create dispute programs for American Standard. And I got to work on um, Coca-Cola's dispute resolution process. And that really sharpened my skills around organizational development and what it takes to be a part of an organization as an individual and then as a member of a community. And that kind of led to me going to Fleet and Bank of America as their ombudsman. And that was just an amazing experience because I had 60,000 employees across the United States who call me up at any time and say, Dina, I have a problem. How am I going to fix this? Oh, my. So I was really, <laughs> yeah, just amazing. I handled about 400 cases a year. And so what would they call you about? You know, a big corporation is very much like a small town. Mm-hmm. So all the things that you see happening in a small town happen at big corporations. So lying, theft, um, you know, threats. I once had someone call me because they'd fired someone and the person threatened to kill them and acted out on the threat. 
So long distance, I'm trying to figure out how can we protect this employee? What's our responsibility here? How can I make this really challenging situation, frightening right. situation, better for them? Right? Those kinds of issues. In addition to equity issues, so like how do we make sure we have more diversity? How do we, once we get diversity up, how do we make it inclusive? Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So when you, So when you first started, you were doing litigation essentially, right? Yep. And then you yep. branched out into, you know, dispute resolution, which is taking a step back from that and dealing with the underlying um, issues there, right? Yep. And then from that, um, working and hearing all of these concerns that that regular people have about a, a very broad range of issues, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And and so, so what did you do? transition back to law? <laughs> yeah, how, what what did you do with that? How did I make that transition? It was a very personal one. So for about ten years, I didn't tell anybody I was a lawyer, um, and that's because I just had so many bad experiences with people telling lawyer jokes. I just wasn't quite feeling it. And then one day, somebody said to me, after all that effort and work, you're not going to own that, and that really resonated with me because. Going to law school is a process. It's a hard process. And if you achieve it and you pass the bar on the other side, you you deserve that recognition. So I started thinking about the law again and looking around. And what I discovered when I came back was lots had not changed. (laughs) Mm. Um, Law had not evolved in ways that I thought it would have evolved. And I was surprised by that. At the same time, I was having kind of a personal challenge. My husband had was running his business, I was running my business, we were both doing great. You know, he had a million dollar business and we were doing all the things you think of when you think of successful entrepreneurs. So we had location, freedom, we could be wherever we wanted, we were taking, um, working with clients that had made us happy, we were enjoying the work, but one thing my husband forgot to do was think about the consequences. Because I'd been in corporate life, I'd always had assistance and people to help me do the work. So I was open to collaborating, and, you know, that's part of mediation too. He didn't quite have that sense of wanting to be open. He never wanted to have employees. He never wanted to write down his processes because someone would steal us. And, you know, he just felt like, I can do this work. Why would I pay anybody else? Well, one night he sneezed. Simple sneeze. Anybody could sneeze. Well, he sneezed and decided to hold it in. That has the force of being hit by a car, the impact of being hit by a car going 40 miles an hour when you're holding a sneeze, I learned. As a result, he crushed two discs in his back, and he crushed the nerve sac at the bottom of his spine. Rushing him to the hospital in the middle of the night was the scariest thing I ever had to do and have the surgeon tell me in her Grey's Anatomy voice, if we don't get him into surgery in 90 minutes, he's going to be paralyzed. You know, my world in 12 hours changed completely. And the next day, he came out of surgery fine, thank goodness. He started a two-year recovery, but his business died in a week. Why? Clients would call and say, where is my XYZ? I'm waiting for ABC, and I had no ability to help, none. And so I thought, I bet we're not the only ones in this situation. And I started thinking about lawyers again and how solo practitioners are very much like my husband, right? They 
hold on to all their work, not very open to delegating, not very yeah. open to writing things down and making systems. A one-person and so that's show. How I, yep, that's how I came back to this because I know, sadly, from personal experience, what happens when you don't plan for those things, right? And as a lawyer, you decide to be a lawyer, but it's also a business. Your family never said they wanted to go into business. They just said they loved you. So it's your responsibility if you start your own law practice as a solo or a small firm to plan for what happens when you're unable to work for whatever reason that is. You're injured. Somebody else in your family has a long-term illness. You win the lottery and you want to go around the world for a year. You still have to keep things in place, right? Yeah. And so that's how I started talking to lawyers about, okay, well, what does your practice look like? Have you automated anything? Do you have any help? And started looking at the idea of how mature the business was. There's some things I think make your business really mature and able to sustain itself, and that's the goal, right, to design a law practice that practically runs itself so that you can focus on the things that you really want to do, like, Oh, I don't know. Practicing law? <laughs> <laughs> well, that that sounds like a, I mean, quite a journey. And I'm, I hope everything worked out with your husband. And no. Sorry to hear so that that happened. A, this is the consequence of not planning. So because he had not planned um, for mm-hmm. any of this, it actually put a real strain on our marriage. And we are actually divorced now. So it's not just that you lose your business. It's not just that you lose money, but you can lose the people in your life when you don't plan to have help or have systems or a better way to run your law business. And you're so right. I know that I myself am guilty of, of not planning as much as I, I wish I, I would um, and taking a lot of things on and not delegating as much as I should. And I'm sure mm-hmm. a lot of... Um, you know, solos and attorneys that work in small firms that are that are listening, probably they see themselves too in that. And so, look, what what can you share with us today about how to to be better about that? I know that one of the topics uh, for today is about managing client expectations. Is there a way that we can manage client expectations that would help us to be able to better manage our own? you know, work schedule and lives. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked me that question. So my thing is really about changing the law experience, both for lawyers and for clients. Because up until now, it's not been a bed of roses for either side. We both Mm -hmm. have complaints about the way the relationship has been going. So in terms of improving your experience as a lawyer, I think oftentimes I find my clients have sort of fallen into their practice And it's the one that they started out and they started to make money at and they added or they added because they needed to make more money, but there's not a love for the topic area. So one of the things I think that you can do right away is really reassess, am I in the area that I want to be practicing in or did I just fall in it? It's really hard to be motivated and excited to come to work every day when you're just mad about the topic. (laughs) So you need to set your own expectation, right? What do you want your work life to be? be like, and moreover, what do you want it to feel like, right? Lawyers are so practical and and logic-based, right? So we think about, well, what is the strategy around this? Well, I also want you to think about how does that feel? 
and how do you feel about working with the clients you have? Because when you can set your expectation that, you know what, my yardstick is that I only work with clients who, you know, respect my work, appreciate they have a legal problem, and are happy to pay me because they see me as an expert, mm-hmm. then guess what? You get a better quality of client. You set that expectation for yourself. This is what I expect my client to be like. Then your marketing changes because now you're speaking to that person and you know the specifics of that person's life. You have a buyer persona. So the first thing I think is figure out are you in the right practice area and can you figure out a way to love the practice area if you're in, if you don't love it? Mm-hmm. And then who do you want your best client to be? So we talk a lot about ideal clients and that's yeah. usually the niche. I want to take that a step further and talk about your best client which is a combination of your ideal client and what you say is best for your practice. Mm-hmm. And that takes a little bit of thinking, right? So who do I really want in my practice as opposed to who came through the door? <laughs> yeah, you mentioned buyer persona. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you come up with that? Look at that. I love talking about that. So, you know, that's, again, an expectation. This is the person I expect to do my work with. Who in your life did you do your best work with as a lawyer? And get that person in your mind right now. And the quality of the interaction matters. You were happy. You were on your game. You were producing great results. What did that client do or say, be or have that made that possible? Right? Mm -hmm. You're looking at those kinds of things. So, you know, I know for me, as a strategist, I love it when my clients come to me saying, I have this idea that I would love to do. I'm missing the logistics, but I'm also a little bit unclear on the um, reason why I'm doing it. So then we sit down. So for me, I love clients who are curious about and able to and want to take changes and make improvements in their lives. That's what I look for. So my marketing language speaks to that. You know, do you want to design a new practice? Is that something that's a good thing for you? Yeah, okay, there you passed the first hurdle. Right? So okay. think about what you want your client to be like. And this is one area where I encourage people to be selfish. Most of the lawyers I know when I ask them, and I always ask clients who start working with me, why did you go into practice? It's always some variation on to help other people which is why I love lawyers. But in this instance, I want you to be selfish and think about what will make me happiest on a day-to-day basis. Who do I want to spend my time with? That's how you set your client persona. And then there's some logistical things. Like So now you understand who their demographics, is it a man or a woman, how old they are, what their family life looks like, you know, what job they have, what their income. Then you can take that information and apply it practically, right? You go to a site like City Data, and you look for the zip codes nearby you. And you look at the City Data information on those zip codes. It will tell you amazing things, like do people go to college in this zip code? What's the average income? How many children do they have? Are they married or not? And that's, that's public information? data for you. Yeah. This is a public website. Wow. And so 
now you have the you have an idea of who your ideal client is because they fit the demographics. Your best client is because they fit you, what you're looking for. Now you have the practical data about where they're at. Mm-hmm. And you can know, go get them now. Now you know the zip codes where you're going to be you know, either advertising or making effort to be speaking in front of groups in that area code, um, connecting with, you know, folks who look like they're your best and ideal client. Is that helpful? Yeah, that is. I, <laughs> you know, I, I haven't thought about it that way, but that's probably best as you, you figure out where the ideal people are as opposed to just taking the people that come in the door that, you know, are are the ones that I would immediately want to serve because they're there. But yeah, yeah. I just need to think about whether or not I want those particular clients or not. Exactly. That's exactly it. You want to make mm-hmm. sure that they are fitting. So when I meet new clients, I, I understand they are evaluating me and my background and whether or not I can help them. They're also asking themselves, will this work for me? Will this be fun? Will it be easy? And so I'm trying to answer those questions on the website and through my branding so that they know. So how do you set it up so so that the client has the right point of view to experience your services in a way where they feel fulfilled instead of frustrated? Yeah, good question. So I think you do that by being very transparent about what your practice is about, which is something lawyers are not so good at doing, um, about saying these are the behaviors that work for me and these are the behaviors that don't, and then people will self-select, right? Hmm. So if you're very clear on, you know, we work best with clients who are, or, using example, organized, able to produce their documents for us, Letting people see that these are the qualities. So if you're somebody who's not organized, not going to produce things on time, I guess I'm going to move on to another lawyer because she's already told me that these are the things that she expects. Right? So right. that kind of putting that data into your website, you know, talking about client successes and highlighting the, the traits of the clients that made it successful helps people see themselves in your copy and know yes or no. So yeah, I'm that or no, I'm not. On to next. You know, I just want to make a quick comment, and that's that it just clicked in my mind that everything you're saying right now is almost the opposite of what most of us do as lawyers. Like the stuff, the stuff that we yeah. say on our website is not trying to find those cues of qualifying the right people to work with. It's more about rah, 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 look at me, I'm so awesome. That's exactly <laughs> it. We're yeah. not, I, I encourage people to be more client-centric and client-focused, less about you. So when I get to a website and I see that long, skinny column of all the practice areas, I know they're not going to be talking to me because they haven't helped me understand what problem I solve. All they give me is a list of practice areas. And if I'm a layperson, what do I know? How do mm-hmm. I know what practice areas is right for me? I don't. I need you to tell me. Right? So that's part of setting client expectations. Your problem is X? Oh, great. We solve X. Here's how we do it. Mm-hmm. Right? Using their language. Plenty of places online to find language that your ideal and best client is using. 
Like where? We sort of took a turn, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> we did. I'm sorry. I got you up. That's you're... okay. I think this is fine to talk about, you know, this. Um, your clients, and I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, we'll just stay on this thread. Is that okay? Yeah. Or should we go back to our original topic? Well, I guess we were talking about um, how to manage that client expectation, expectation. so it's fulfilling. Yeah. And, and you were saying, well, the first part of it is, you know, getting them to understand um, what you expect of them. Right, right. So can I ask, just add another example about that? So one of the things that I know lots of solos and my clients too get anxious or concerned about is getting paid. Right. How do I, you know, yeah. how do I make sure I'm, I'm going to get paid? And what I ask people is, well, do you tell clients that they need to pay you? And, you know, <laughs> sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> uh, and that, that's, there's like, there's just an expectation. So I think the better way to do it is to, one, ask clients to pay you, because that's an affirmative, right? I you ask, I answer, then I know. And the reason I like asking is because most of us, and this is brain science, most of us do not like to contradict ourselves as human beings. When we say yes, we want it to be we want it to be a yes. So if I ask you and say my expectation is that you're going to pay for my services, and you say yes, now I already set it up that you you want to be consistent with yourself. So yes, you're going to pay. If there's a problem with paying, that's where everybody gets a little weird, right? Clients get weird about that. We get weird about that. I looked right. at a study and it said that 87% of law clients are worried about how they're going to pay. And I guess last year's or this year's um, legal trends said that the number one thing that lawyers are worried about is, well, one of the top three things is dealing with payment issues with clients, right? So it's everybody's worried about that. If we're both worried about it, why should we both worry separately? Let's just talk about it together. So I encourage folks to say, like, here's my payment policy. Here's how my fees work. And here's what happens if ever you have a problem with paying. Like, be very specific. There is a lingering perception that lawyers are rich. And we do nothing to change that. It's not true anymore. It used to be the lawyers were like maybe the richest person in the community, but that's not true now. But we still like that reputation, and so we don't bother to tell clients that that's not true. So they just assume, well, okay, let me see. A little bit of money this month, five different people want to get that little bit of money. Who can I not pay? The one who doesn't need the money. That's the lawyer. right? So we kind of set ourselves up for that. I say let's be a little bit more transparent. Explain to people, you know, the money that you pay helps me run the office and helps me to serve you. If there's a problem with paying, I would rather you tell me earlier than later so that collaboratively, together, we can work out something so that your case can continue to move forward, I can continue to get paid, and we can continue our good working relationship. I'd rather you tell me than not tell me. And that gives people permission to tell you. Mm -hmm. Right, so that's setting up the expectation right in the beginning, maybe in your first intake conversation with this person when they're becoming a client. Here are all the things that our firm does, and one of those is talk about how we we pay, right? So 
I think you can definitely set those expectations and reinforce them using, you know, brain science principles. And That's, emotional intelligence principles. Right. Yeah, I mean it's really it's really great. It's it's something that I guess because I assume it's obvious that I wouldn't bring up, but but you're right that it's not it's not just that. It's not that the expectation should be obvious or not. It's about actually having the conversation that itself is useful and productive because it causes you to really deal with it head on and then have mm-hmm. that relationship that comes from it, right? That's right, because you're dealing at, with it at the time when your relationship is the best, right? When you've just been hired by a client, what they've actually said is, I like you, I trust you to help me solve my problem, right? That's the height of trust, so that's when you want to be able to say that. I, I see you. I I want to be able to solve your problem. Here's how you can help me. Hmm. That gives people that opportunity to be like, yeah, we're in a partnership. Ooh, excuse me. I have some stuff to do. Because normally the way it works is when you're entering a relationship with a lawyer, I think most clients feel one down. I, I'm, I, this is not my arena. I don't know anything about this. I just have to keep my head down and hope I don't get hurt. I can't tell you how many friends of mine told me, beware of the divorce lawyer who's going to take all your money. Right? Clients learn about lawyers from TV. Yeah. So they have an expectation about, you know, maybe not the most honest, not maybe not the most caring. So I think it's incumbent upon you as a lawyer to dispel that myth, right? change that perception, and have your client see you as a real person, not a TV lawyer. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's very helpful. Uh, it's, and it's something that I know that I should incorporate into my practice so that not only do they know what to expect from me, but um, I, I know that I can expect to get paid. <laughs> that's right. That you, you shut down the expectation. So nobody is misinformed. Everybody is pretty clear on the marching orders. You have some stuff to do. I have some stuff to do. And when we both do our things, we get a good result. So, so what are some I mean, concrete steps that lawyers and law firms can take to to implement that in their practice? Cool. Um, well, one, I, I love giving tips. So I'm happy to talk a little about this. One thing I think every lawyer, whether you're in solo practice, small firm practice, or any other kind of configuration is spend some time learning you, right? I like to talk about the sovereign nation of you. That's each one of us has a way that we do our stuff. We have rules. We have regulations. We have, you know, ideas and values. Figure out what yours are because they're impacting your world anyway. Um, but if you can be clear on what they are, then you get to shape the impact a little bit, right? When you're much more self-aware and you know your own strengths, then you're able to defend your your value better and actually get what you deserve in terms of your pricing. When you're much more aware of yourself in terms of your bias, like, I don't like people who chew gum, Tom. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that out loud. <laughs> but I'm aware of that bias, right? So now I know that, you know, if someone comes, a client comes for me, they're chewing gum, I know, okay, that's a trigger for you. Try not to make that be a trigger. Make it be a neutral. Or 
recognize that the trigger is gone and maybe this is not the best client for you. Right? So the more that you know about yourself, the better you can guide your practice. Take some testing. Things like the Colby, Strengths Finder, Thomas Kilman will all help you learn more about who you are in the world and how you function mm-hmm. and your strengths, right? Then the second thing is really what we talked about, which is create your ideal best client persona. Got to do it. Spend the time to think about who is really my ideal client because we work so hard for our clients. I love lawyers who extend themselves. They're like warriors going to battle for the clients. You want to make sure you're going to battle for the right person. So make sure you know who that is. And my key is clients have to appreciate you, know they have a problem, and be willing to pay for it. That's, for me, a best client. And then you want to be making sure that you know your compelling story. Why do you have to get paid? I, what do you, I what do you mean by that? I lawyers tell me all the time, well, I didn't get paid. And that's because the client had a more compelling story than yours. So clients will say, but I'm going to get paid next week, or my grandma fell off a cruise ship, I have to pay for a medical bill. You know, there's stories. And they're compelling, and we're compassionate. That's how we got to be lawyers. But you have to have a compelling story in your mind that's greater than theirs about why you have to get paid. And I'll give you a quick example if we have a minute. Yeah. So when I was a young lawyer, I was newly divorced, and I had two kids, toddlers. And I was starting my consulting practices. Not starting, but it was middle. And I wanted them to have a house. And I was like, okay, what do I got to do to make that happen? So I understand how much I have to have for a down payment. I'm working with a corporate client, and we get to the end of the year. And, you know, I'm like, all right, so I need to have X thousands of dollars in my bank account before the end of this year so I can buy a house next year. How are we going to do that? So I go to my client and I say, okay, here's the deal. You know, we are already contracted to do this work next year. Here's why I think you should pay me at the end of this year. And I gave them all the financial reasons why it made sense for them to pay me early. So they could see they'd be getting a discount, that, you know, they'd be keeping their budgeting at a level that going forward, it made sense for them financially. But then I told them my compelling story, which is the personal element of it. Here's why I need you to do all these things now. And I explained that, you know, I wanted my kids to grow up in a city and have a backyard to run around in. Um, And it was very important for me to make that happen. And the way it could happen was through this deal. And that was compelling enough for the person to say, yeah, okay, We'll pay us a couple hundred thousand dollars now, and you know we want to be invited to a housewarming party. <laughs> that's a compelling story. I, you know that's a true story. You have to have a compelling reason why you need the money. Everybody has a compelling reason. You have a family. So I was working with a client the other day, and she's like, "Ah, I just feel bad asking for the amount of money I know I should get." like, okay, well, let's talk about your family. And she tells me, and she's got beautiful twins. She holds up a picture because usually I'm on Zoom. So I could see her gorgeous girls. I'm like, well, there is your compelling story. What do you think their life will be like when they're in their 20s? And she tells me the story about them, you know, going off to college and having all these experiences. And I ask her, well, how are you paying for that? Because, you know, 
college now. Kind of need to be a millionaire almost. And she realizes, okay, I, I, you know, I need to raise my rates. Not just get the rates I was getting, but raise my rates. Because that, I want my girls to go to whatever college they want to go to, and I want to be able to pay for that without an issue. That's a compelling story. So when now when the client comes to her and says, oh, I wish the fees were less, or can you give me an adjustment, or whatever the story is, she plays her compelling story in her mind, and then she's able to deal with their compelling story, because hers is more. Hmm. You know... It's just that... Yeah, you know, no, I, I completely agree. And I remember we, we just before talking on on today's show, we talked a little bit about this. And I I have to agree that for me, that was a, a big eye opener. And it still is because mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever thought of, of my story, like about why it's important, not just from a business standpoint, but from a personal one about mm-hmm. why I need to get paid. Yeah, and but it's critical, right? We yeah. just expect people will pass because we're lawyers. That's because we were taught in law school. You just show up, the clients will arrive, right? That's all you have to do. You're a lawyer. Oh no, it wasn't true then, and it's certainly not true now. You have to actually convince clients that you're the best lawyer for them because they have lots of other opportunities. And then when you get them, you have to be paid the right rate. And so to be a get your right rate, you have to know what it is and know your strengths. That's the self-awareness. And you have to know the compelling story. Mm-hmm. Why do I need this money? I have a life. I would like to support that. Well, are, are there are, are there any resources that, that lawyers and, and uh, legal professionals can turn to to learn more about about this, like how to implement this? So, you know, I think this is kind of a new idea. I've I've drawn on different um, other diff- disciplines. So one of the books I love and recommend people reading all the time is Small Giants. And it's about small companies actually deciding to say, stay small. And the reason that one is relevant for lawyers is because you're already small. But you might feel if you're a solo or a practice of under 10, but you don't have the ability or the right to make the rules that you want. Well, that's not true. It's your business. You make the rules. So that book really helped me get to a place where I was like, okay, this is my business. I'm going to run it the way I want, and here are my rules. I think that reading um, Outside In by Kerry Bodine mm-hmm. will get you starting to think about being client-centric, which is what I want all my clients to be. Really focus on what is the client's experience before they get to the door. Because, you know, clients just don't pop up like potatoes out of the ground, at your doorstep, asking you to give them legal services. Things happen to them before they get to you. I like to say the earlier that you can get into that journey, the more likely they're going to pick you to accompany them on the journey. So what happens right before they come to your door you know, who are they talking to? How are they trying to solve those problems? Are all opportunities for you to influence that decision? Well, I think that's that's fantastic. And, you know, honestly, for me, this is a lot that I need to incorporate. And I know it's going to take some time because bad habits are kind of hard to break. Um, <laughs> yes, but I'm going to work on it. 
that's one of the things I actually work a lot with my clients on is because they know they need help. They want some strategies around how to um, get the help, but also how to implement it. Like how do you stop doing what you're doing and then start doing something else? It's a process. It just doesn't happen overnight. You have to plan to make the transition. Um, so one last resource I would offer up for folks is that, you know, if they felt like they wanted to have that discussion on beginning to look at their practice and redesigning it, I'd be happy to share um, some 30 minutes with someone to sit down and walk through them. I offer free consult for all the time because I know this is a new idea for lawyers and we're like pretty skeptical folks. <laughs> so um, I'm hoping to talk to folks about that. They just need to get on my calendar. Well, that sounds great. Um, I, let's, um, well, just before we get to that, though, I, I'd like to, you know, thank you. I, I loved getting to know you better and learning more about managing client and lawyer expectations, because that's part of it, too, uh, why it's important and how to implement it. Um, but one question I always like to ask at the end of, of the, these conversations is just a little off the beaten path. Okay. So what's a place on your bucket list that you've never visited that you would like to and why? So how did you find out about my secret passion, Tom? <laughs> I <laughs> am a huge foodie. Like people who know me know that I travel for food. Ah. And lately I have a ramen obsession that's epic proportion <laughs> just epic like i've eaten at every ramen place in oakland and i'm starting to branch out looking for more and more mm -hmm. so i would be just overjoyed to take a trip to japan and do a ramen tour i think i might not come back <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic I, i'm a big ramen fan too that's it's so nourishing it's so warm and comforting is now my favorite comfort food and who would have mm. ever thought that would happen right because was it 10 years ago nobody was eating ramen <laughs> except for the kind from the grocery store and we can't even call that ramen right yeah not anymore um not anymore well thank you dina again for sharing your time and thoughts today um how can people keep in touch with you Ah, well, I would love to stay in touch. People can find me on Twitter at, at Dina Eisenberg. Um, if you hop over to my website, OutsourceEasier.com, you can grab my free infographic on how to produce a year's worth of blog content in a weekend. And for those who really want to think about, you know, attracting their ideal clients, hop on to my SEO webinar that's on November 8th. Um, you'll find the registration on my website because I'm going to be talking more about the basics of SEO, um, really why local search is important, and then how to pick the right SEO person for you because lots of people get hooked up with the wrong person and maybe don't have quite the grip on what they're looking for for an SEO expert. And so we'll be talking about that on November 8th. Mm. Well, that sounds like good stuff. Um, thank, you. thank you again for being my guest today. And thank you um, all who called in for attending our teleconference today, How to Exceed Client Expectations and Get Paid for Doing It with Dina Eisenberg. Thanks, Tom. It was a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you, Dina. Um, again, this is Tom Martin. I want to thank you. Uh, 
and thank GLSA for sponsoring. Remember, joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. And you can check us out at glsaonline.org. See you next month.